Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Zia Faruqi did not become a doctor. But I'm sure his mother is very proud of him anyway. I was the first in my family to be a lawyer uh, in the United States. I think, uh, like many people from my community, Pakistani Americans, like I say to my mom, there's two options. You can either be a doctor or a failure, and I chose the failure path. That hits so deep, though, because I went to school for engineering like a lot of, like, Indian kids do. But luckily, you know, I think law was still something that uh, registered at least somewhat. He's a federal magistrate judge in D.C., and a former federal prosecutor for the Department of Justice in the D.C. Attorney General's office. I just want your Ami to know that, uh, really, you could have ended up worse. A <laughs> DOJ <you laughs> magistrate judge, not bad. Yeah, yeah no, I'll quote you on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. As a DOJ prosecutor, Zia helped take down the biggest child sexual exploitation ring on the dark net. He took down cryptocurrency streams funding terrorist organizations and a multinational crypto laundering scheme. And so I started that process of like, well, why aren't we following the money on these sanctions evasion cases, right? Like Beth Bisbee, the former DEA crypto queen, as we called her in one of our earlier episodes, intrepid agents find themselves leading the charge type of things that needed to be done. It's taking a bunch of digitally savvy investigators and prosecutors to revamp the federal government's strategy for taking on cybercriminals. Zia Faruqi is one of those people. I apologize on behalf of the judiciary that you haven't yet had a chance to hang with the judge, but I'm, I'm glad we can today. I mean, surely it was a bucket list item, hanging with a judge. <laughs> yes, it's, it's <laughs> the unspoken one, yes, that everyone has and doesn't know. After you get one judge friend, you get lots. It's automatic, and there's like a punch card. I think you get a free coffee, so once you have 10 judge friends. I think part of it is, you know, you're supposed to be these neutral arbiters, and it's, it's difficult, I think, for people to imagine true neutrality. This is Politico Tech. I'm Mohar Chatterjee. Follow the money. That's a very complex world of the cyber criminals, these non-government actors engaging in illicit activity, doing foreign intelligence. How do you actually investigate crypto? You know, we subpoenaed virtual currency exchanges. Funds transfers. Privacy and anonymity are not bad. We've observed more and more threat actors. The major players behind the darknet markets. This week, we take you behind the scenes on the interdepartmental, intergovernmental policy tensions in prosecuting cybercrimes, regulating data privacy, and coordinating with agencies abroad. If you're just tuning into the podcast, stop right there and check out the first five episodes of the series. That's where I delve into the darknet landscape and explain how cybercriminals are increasingly threatening national security. It's bingeable. There's also an accompanying story that you can read. Links in the description. I'll be waiting right here when you're done. Before we get into it, some of the things we talk about in this episode get really dark. Use your discretion. We'll discuss a case involving child pornography. Anything. Every crime has added, typically at bottom, a financial component. If not, a, you know, it's not driven by finances. And so... My career as a prosecutor started by learning how to follow the money, and that has really, for me, I think, taken me to super interesting places, particularly in the world of cryptocurrency and the darknet. Zia's specialization as a DOJ prosecutor was in money laundering and forfeiture. But to understand some of the things that drive him, 
you need to know a little bit more about where he's coming from. 9-11 was my first year of law school. It certainly shaped a lot of who I was. And I think it really was a driving force to get into public service. Right? I didn't know what that was, but I wanted, as a Muslim American, to have a seat at the table where I was representing the country and my values uh, were there as well. Once Zia settled into his position, a pretty significant gap grew apparent in the money laundering cases he was working on. Well, why aren't we following the money on these sanctions evasion cases, right? Like when someone's trying to evade sanctions to get equipment for North Korea's uh, proliferation program, they're using money laundering fronts to do it. And if you follow the money, it can take you back. But as I always try to remind my friends at the U.S. Attorney's Office, there's not a phone division in the U.S. Attorney's Office, but there is a cyber division. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense because all crime, like all of life, happens via computers. So it doesn't make sense to try to divorce that out from a particular area of crime. And I was very lucky I had a colleague, uh, Chris Brown, not the rapper, the other Chris Brown. Uh, important and distinction. <laughs> super important uh, because I actually prosecuted Chris Brown at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And so, you know, he... Uh, uh, this Chris Brown is just wicked smart. And, you know, I remember he's like, there's this Bitcoin thing. And I was like, oh, my God, what's this nerd talk? I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, dude, what is this? This is never going to catch on. Dear listener, virtual currency did end up catching on as a concept. When Zia's colleague, Chris Jancheski, then an IRS agent, brought him an online gambling case, Zia was not into it. Uh, I was like, Chris, um, bro, we're not prosecuting that case. He's like, why not? I was like, that has no jury appeal. He's like, really? I was like, um, I'm pretty sure everyone gambles online. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Two weeks later, Chris came back to Zia with a case that was much more disturbing. Two weeks later, Chris comes out with his, like, what passes for a scraggly beard mustache. Uh, and he's just like, I haven't left my basement. I found the largest darknet child pornography case. And, like, Ari and I did everything together. Ari is Ari Redboard, who was an assistant U.S. attorney at the time. I'm like, what are you talking about, Chris? He's like, don't, what are you talking about, Mezia? Like, we talked about this. I was like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, no, you said find a darknet child pornography. I found the largest one. And Ari's like, dude, facts, like. I was there, I heard this. Chris and Ari showed Zia some hard-to-watch evidence of what ended up being the biggest child pornography ring on the dark web by volume of content. Ari flagged an important detail about what the case said about technological advancement. This was our dream. He was like, our dream was to prosecute a kingpin in a child pornography case, not to do just like the To Catch a Predator go one-offs, but there's never been a way that you could find that person. Like, even if they existed, you couldn't find it. But Chris, you found it, right? Because of this site was on the dark net. So yes, did technology enable it for existing? Yeah, absolutely. But technology also enabled the tracing of it because we just started going and made a financial investigation. Remember Josh Laspinoza from the last episode? He noted something similar about how cyber criminals and the people trying to take them down evolve in technological tandem. On the operational side, the very technologies that allow for privacy and security, simultaneously create tools for attackers to go undetected. And this is one of the most perverse things about security in a modern enterprise or on modern information technology. The 2019 indictment was the result of multi-agency cooperation between Zia, Chris, Ari, and others. The key to building an unassailable case against the people involved in that ring was the cryptocurrency angle. We 
started digging into this, but we just treated it like Yuli would always be like, this is a financial case. Yes, it is, you know, infants and toddlers are being raped and that's awful, but like we're going to treat this like a financial case. And so that's what we did. You know, we subpoenaed virtual currency exchanges. This case came to be known publicly as the welcome to video case. In the end, the kingpin, a South Korean national by the name of Jong Woo Son, and 337 users in the U.S. and abroad were arrested and charged. It was a collaboration of the DOJ, the IRS, and ICE, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency. We arrest that guy, but we're still going after the administrator. But as you said, to put the case together, to attribute to him, was very difficult. And so, you know, it's reflected in our indictment. And we also, for the first time ever, filed a forfeiture complaint because there are plenty of people who are overseas at places where some of these things might not be a crime or they wouldn't extradite somebody. And so we tried to get the money, right? To, di- to disrupt is not only about indictments and arrest. It's also about taking the financial incentive out of crime. And so uh, what we did was um, how do we attribute it to the person that we ultimately alleged? And so using clustering technology. Clustering is essentially grouping together crypto wallets so that the information they contain can be de-anonymized. Chris was able to go and find, you know, welcome to video. The, the administrator was smart. They d- you didn't use the same one wallet to take money in. And that is an easy pitfall for criminals, right? It's like in a traditional fiat money laundering case, you know, if you find one person and then you go to the person that was the kingpin, you would then work backwards and see who else sent that person money because no person is diligent enough to open, and it's hard to open 100 bank accounts, right? They just open one and they get money from 99 people to them. But in a crypto case, you open, I mean, there were over, I think it was over a million wallets that had already been generated by Welcome to Video because... And automatically generated wallets. And they were registered on a specific exchange or... No, no. So on the website, it encouraged you to use a couple South Korean exchanges, but also... Also, U.S.-based exchanges were also on there and said, if you want to send money to me, send it this way. But none of the exchanges knew, right, like that this was a uh, darknet child pornography site. As soon as they knew from our investigation, once an indictment became public, they all immediately went back and started clustering that and seeing like, well, who else was sending money there? And that's why there were just waves of arrests that kept happening because people may have downloaded their content and then not sent money again or their account might have gotten closed, but they didn't know why. Yeah. So this is Bitcoin. And uh, we talk about this previously in the series where, you know, there is a ledger technology that allows, you know, wallet to wallet tracing. It's it's easier than than Monero now, where the ledger is is even more uh, hard to parse. It's easier than traditional money, right? Like when I did financial investigations, I sent uh, out and we litigated with my uh, colleague, David Good, and I litigated to and Ari to the D.C. Circuit. So the what we like to say is the second highest court in the country. It took us two years to litigate subpoenaing three Chinese banks to get their bank records. And welcome to video. We were getting them literally within hours of someone across the world. It was like middle of the night there. And we said, this is a dark net child pornography case. And so they were getting us those records right away back to us. It's one of those things I really wanted to highlight with the Hydra case at the beginning of this series, which is there were 19,000 vendors on that uh, Darknet forum when it was taken down. Really only one, uh, the website administrator or the server administrator rather, was arrested. And so my immediate question was, okay, it's, it's a question of scope again. How do you track down all of these different vendors and people? What I was left with is surely there's got to be like a systemic way to do this. All of the investigators I spoke with, they were like, yeah, traditional investigative techniques, you know, it's one person at a time. But you're talking to me about an investigative methodology that yielded ripple effects, you know, those waves on waves of arrests. And a lot of that is tied back 
if I understand correctly, to those to the wallet clustering. A hundred percent. Yeah, all of it. All of it goes back to going to the blockchain, clustering to see are these people sending money out of exchanges? And, you know, by and large, people use banks to send money. They don't do it just on their own. And the same is true in crypto. And then the exchanges were definitely the unsung heroes. The exchanges were ones who are, again, middle of the night, right? Like there was ones in Korea, in, in Europe, who they were like, look, I mean, you can't subpoena us. And we just said, here's the investigation. But the thing is, again, like, if you tell like a traditional bank, like, hey, I'm investigating child pornography because everyone wants to fight against child sexual exploitation material. But the Bank of America is like, OK, so what, prosecutor, you said that. But like, I don't know what the Wells Fargo and the Deutsche Bank records look like. I can't, you know, it's 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 trust, but don't verify. But when you go to a crypto exchange, say like, look, I took down this site and I'm concerned because these people are sending it to me. They can get on their own software and do the clustering and, and recreate it all themselves and be like, yeah, this checks out. Like, this isn't just an overzealous prosecutor trying to use this as a pretext to do something. So I think that, like, the exchanges were doing their own homework, making sure that we weren't just BSing them. But then they were just like, look, we don't want this on our platform. You know, it's against our terms of service. So we can share this information with you and we will. And uh, there are so many data privacy questions there. Like, if a regular person signing on with a crypto exchange who wants to be anonymous, like, there are civil liberties reasons for... Absolutely. It's not a crime to use crypto. It's not a crime to want privacy. It's not a crime to want privacy. It's not a crime to use crypto. And so you keep going back to this policy tension of like, how much is too much monitoring? Our courthouse is right across the street from Congress. And so I just love that, you know, they have to deal with those hard questions. I get the easier, <laughs> oh, uh, this case questions. Yeah, no, you, you you can just go, these are the bad guys. And Congress goes, <laughs> what are bad guys? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. They're the philosophers. The Welcome to Video case wasn't a one-hit wonder. During Zia's time as a federal prosecutor, he and his colleagues also tackled other crypto-related cases, like the Dark Scandals rape video and child porn website run by a Dutch citizen, a trio of crypto-funded terrorist financing campaigns involving Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Al-Qassam brigades, and a Chinese operation laundering more than $100 million worth of crypto stolen by North Koreans. These were not single-agency prosecutions. In order to get everyone on the same page, talk with one voice, as you said, how long did that entire process take? We would get uh, in an Uber or a Lyft and, or a bike over because I bike to work, uh, metro over. What is it? Go over to Treasury. Just go in there and knock on the door and be like, hey, can you talk to us for five minutes? I know you guys don't like talking to prosecutors, but can you, we just tell you what our authorities are? And so like that was our nine to five. Is like we tried to take um, this model that one of my mentors, Michael Atkinson, always like, hey, like you got to treat this like you're a law firm. Like who are your clients? And so we treated those stakeholders like our clients. So we went over there with like donuts because, you know, we're still cops at the end of the day. And we're trying to wend them over and say like, hey, just listen to us. Let us talk to you about what we can do. And then the 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. is like the actual doing the legal process. But it took over a year and a half. You know, Jesse Liu actually created, uh, to her credit. Jesse K. Liu, the lawyer who was the U.S. attorney for D.C. from late 2017 through early 2020. The first ever, and so only U.S. Attorney's Office had this, we had DOD people embedded in our office analysts. We had a threat finance unit because she's like, we need to take this multidisciplinary approach. We can't just be like, this is a cyber case. This is a national security case. This is a money laundering case. This um, this is a prosecution case. This is an intelligence case. She's like, we got to get them all in one spot. And we did that. And so that allowed us to interface with those stakeholders. And like one of the cool things, again, that came out of that, which was thanks to Jesse's guidance, is like, um, I prosecuted art theft cases. And like, what's the most standard thing in art theft cases? Like as soon as art is stolen, 
you publicize it, right? So like the Mona Lisa gets stolen, it's worth a billion dollars. Five minutes later, you're publicizing it's stolen. It's worth maybe like 10,000 or 100,000. Like, you know, your legitimate um, auction houses, your Sotheby's, your Christie's, Ebay's, whatever, like they're not selling that thing. They checked the FBI art crime index. And so we were stuck with like, how are we going to get these unhosted North Korean wallets, right? Like they're not at a bank. There's nothing we can do. And like, whereas if they had stolen cash or they got money at a bank, they could have moved it around and no one would ever know. But we're like, dude, let's use the art crime model. And so I'm very lucky that Jesse had put me on this case. And so we did the first time ever, we started publicizing every unhosted wallet that the North Koreans had stolen. The first thing someone's going to do is Google that address. And they're going to be like, oh, snap, this is on like a DOJ thing. Like, I'm not touching this. This is hot. That whole idea like, oh, there's nothing you can do with them. Yeah, there's plenty you can do just like with stolen art. But what you could never do with cash, right? Because if someone stole cash, if it doesn't have that ink dye that blows up on it, there's no one knows the serial numbers. And so you could go spend that at wherever you want to. So Zia's flagging something here that was a recurring theme through the interview. Using PR as an offensive tool in a highly anonymized space, publicizing the addresses for every crypto wallet associated with that case acted as a deterrent for those who didn't really want to be involved in cybercriminal activity. In the terrorist financing case Zia helped prosecute in the summer of 2020, the Department of Homeland Security actually took over the payment portal that directed cryptocurrency streams to Al-Qassam brigades. They impersonated individuals interested in financing Al-Qaeda. Then, they seized another site raising money for ISIS. The effect was twofold. One was that in some cases, the money could be redirected to a terrorism victims fund. And two... And so we wanted people to think the next time someone tweets out and says, hey, you should donate to this terrorist funding site. They're like, oh, shoot, is this like terrorist or is this like those wily Homeland Security agents again? So they don't know, right? What needs to improve to make these investigations better and bring more prosecutions? Well, when I left as a prosecution, my parting advice was it was all about relationships, right? The reason that Welcome to Video got taken down was not because... I mean, it was because of Chris's work and all the rest of the team, for sure. But Tom Tamsey was beloved by the Korean police because he went there and he late night karaoke with them and they dared him to eat a traditional Korean cuisine of octopus, live octopus, and he ate it and the octopus guy. When we went there, the German law enforcement came with us and they were like, hey, um, how come you guys got them to bite on this lead? We sent them actually months before Chris had found it, they had found it. I was like, you don't have the octopus guy. And so it's about building relationships. All these cases, as, as cyber and computer and sophisticated they were, it's just about people working together and working on the mission. It's not just like federal agencies cooperating with each other, which is, we've established, incredibly important, but it's also keeping those lines of communication open between America and literally everyone else. Yeah, the world, other governments, but also like private sector. We had huge help from the private sector, right? From clustering technology that we contracted with to exchanges to the email providers like Gmail, Yahoo, all these people like you know, you had to begin, but like, it's your point is like, there's a fine line between being um, reserved, but also being like overt. So people know what's happening so that they can, because people don't want this, the, the dark net and the crypto side, people are, they want this to be deplatformed. Digging in just a little bit. You've told me about a thing we did well, but I'm asking you what could be better. Agents came to me and said, like, I want to charge his case. And my boss would say, no, Zia, that, that isn't a case we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Is there a probable cause that we could charge it? Absolutely. But is it the right thing to do because we wouldn't be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? No. And that's actually DOJ guidance in the justice manual. And so 
there may not be prosecutions that are happening because there's not a framework to prosecute it. There's not the, the jurisdiction. Uh, so just because those cases aren't being prosecuted doesn't mean prosecutors aren't doing their job because part of their job is to not prosecute cases. It is That is a tool of last resort when someone has committed such a terrible crime and done something that all of the stars align that can do it. Now that he's on the other side of the bench, Zia sees a view few people ever do. In this courthouse, there are Cases being prosecuted every day here related to crypto that have been. Welcome to video, Graham's Helix. But there are cases that are active and there are judges here who are struggling with the guidance of the prosecutors and really smart defense lawyers are saying, how do you take this antiquated framework and put it into this future, right? Not just modern, but future um, technology. What are some of the most immediate open challenges that federal prosecutors are facing in successfully building the cases like the ones you've both judged and prosecuted yourself. There is a visceral reaction when people hear Bitcoin or crypto. They're like, that's not a real thing. Like, what are you talking about? Or like, again, like, I I don't know what that is. I don't understand it. Judges, prosecutors, investigators, you got to get over that initial hurdle of this isn't real. It doesn't make sense. Why do people do this? To be like, well, it is a thing. And actually, I don't need to understand. I don't understand the ones and zeros. And so there are other prosecutors who are super teched up and they get it. I don't understand how mining works. I don't understand, um, you know, the uh, sort of process by which uh, crypto exchanges the like the, you know, the nodes and stuff like that. I don't get that. I understand money laundering investigations. I understand people got money and they used money and they try to hide how they're using it to get things and infuse illegitimate money into legitimate street of commerce. And Bitcoin was just another way to do what people have been doing. Right. People talk about outlawing Bitcoin, but no one's talking about outlawing cash. People have been using it's. It's not a question of the, the device. It's how do they use it? That's the, the problem. And, you know, are there guardrails to prevent it from, you know, that's like legislation things so that it can be regulated. And that's the regulator's problem. I'm lucky to be a judge and not mine. So Zia's out here making sure those judges, prosecutors and investigators know not to look away. As they figure out how to use their existing toolkit to investigate cybercrime in a rapidly shifting landscape... Zia is throwing it to the regulators to figure out the legal guardrails for the emerging technologies propping up these online platforms. But that's next time on Politico Tech. I'll talk to Representative Jim Himes on the House Financial Services Committee about the challenges of writing legislation for this space. Well, it's part of a larger issue, which is trying to uh, wrestle our way into a regulatory apparatus, which is, you know, analogous, really, to the regulatory apparatus that all of us are used to, but for a new technology. I'm Moha Chatterjee. Thanks for tuning in.